Welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. Evidently, I am the Inflation Guy. I am Michael Ashton, the Inflation Guy, and your host for this podcast. This is the inaugural podcast for Sense and Sensibility, Episode 1. So today we're going to talk about, because it is the first, and you, you need to know something about who it is that's giving this podcast, who that is going to be talking about this stuff. What What is the podcast about? Should you subscribe? Of course, the answer is yes, you should subscribe. And what I believe, because the topic of this podcast, what we are about, is about inflation. And one of the things I will say a lot is kind of our theme is defend your money. One of the worst things that can happen to money is that it just pernicious, the pernicious inflation tax just gradually eats it away. And that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about inflation on this podcast, which you might have guessed anyway, because I am the inflation guy. It would be sort of silly for me to talk about something other than inflation. We will, of course, occasionally stray, but for the most part, you know, I'm not an expert in everything, but I'm an expert in inflation. But we'll talk about what inflation is, how you measure it, and most importantly, how we protect ourselves against it, how we protect portfolios against inflation, and 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 all sorts of sort of ancillary issues around that. We're going to talk about inflation in the past. We're going to talk about what inflation is going to be in the future. And occasionally even we'll talk about what inflation is in the present. Now, as your host, you're going to have to be listening to me. And so it seems to me that it would be fair for me to tell you a little bit about myself. Because after all, I could be a conspiracy theorist instead of someone with an informed and refined view on inflation, which I am. So I want to tell you a little bit about myself, introduce myself as we introduce the podcast, and tell you not only about my background and why it is that I am the inflation guy and how I came to be the inflation guy, but also what I believe. Because there are lots of people who talk about inflation more and more every day these days, and, and some of them really are out there. I mean, really out there. You know, crazy people. There's a, there's a whole website out there dedicated, and I'm not going to talk about, I'm not going to mention what the website is. You probably know it if you pay attention to inflation or you read stories about it. Occasionally these guys pop up. But there's a whole website dedicated to the proposition that the government has misstated, intentionally misstated inflation by 6% a year or so for 50 years. Um, and it's absurd. And it, mathematically, it simply can't be the case. And in episode three, I'm going to explain why it can't be the case, why it can't possibly be right, why you shouldn't pay attention to that, that sort of crazy talk, uh, and why it is that it's just nonsense. Now, the fact that I'm saying that I'm not on the crazy train with inflation conspiracy theorists, uh, but the fact that I'm calling myself that does not necessarily mean that I, I have 
totally mainstream views when it comes to to price inflation. And uh, and in fact, in, in a lot of ways, because I've studied this very intently for quite some period of time, um, I've developed some views that are distinctly non-mainstream, but they work. Um, and so we'll talk about those things as this podcast progresses. Um, let me tell you first a little bit about my own background, because again, I could be just any guy, but I am the inflation guy. And how did I get to be the inflation guy? I started my career a little bit more than 30 years ago uh, in you know, bulge bracket shops, the sell side, you know, Wall Street firms, you know, depending on how you want to talk about it, but big firms like J.P. Morgan and Bankers Trust and Deutsche Bank uh, and Barclays um, doing sort of what, what young people can do. It, it, the trading environment, the, the Wall Street environment is a hard thing to sustain for a long period of time. Um, it really... This is less true than it used to be, but it's a young person's game. Um, lots of stress. Um, and and I started off as sort of a strategist and did lots of research and, and, and taught uh, uh, training programs and things like that, always kind of most, mostly in the bond world. And then I moved into trading, um, and, and that was at Barclays. I traded options, and Barclays tapped me to to essentially start the inflation derivatives market in the United States. The derivatives market in, in Europe for inflation had, had been going for a couple of years. And of course, we have the world's largest bond market, the largest inflation-linked bond market, and the largest bond market uh, in the United States. And so it was sort of weird that we didn't have inflation derivatives. And Barclays styled themselves as the inflation house and figured that, that if anyone was going to start inflation derivatives, you know, it had to be them. And that's, you know, the customers were asking. And it made sense to have me do that uh, because, first of all, you know, I, I uh, you know, I was an okay trader. Uh, but when you start a new market, you know, where you're, you're the market maker, uh, it's less important that you be, you know, a fantastic trader because the market doesn't move a whole heck of a lot. It doesn't move unless you say it moves. So it's, it's, a, it's an easier thing to do than trading, you know, one-month tenure vol uh, against hedge funds, and which, by the way, is also kind of soulless, but I'll get into that. Um, and so they tapped me to do this partly because, though, I did have a trading experience and I had an analytical experience. Uh, I'd been a, a strategist, and so I kind of had some idea of how you could how these things should be priced, inflation swaps should be priced. And I um, and I'd also done a fair amount of, of teaching uh, training programs, like I said, and I had a popular uh, daily commentary that went to Barclays customers. And that turns out to be important because if you're starting a new market, you need a couple of things. One is you need to kind of know where the market is. You need to know how to handle risk, and that's part of being a trader. But you also need to be able to tell stories. You need to be uh, able to explain how the market works to, and, and to people who need it. And you need to be able to tell stories and evangelize for the product. And so I called myself an inflation markets evangelist. I really wasn't so much an inflation evangelist. In fact, at the time, I was sort of negative on what I didn't really think inflation was going to go anywhere. But 
which which irritated Barclays to no end. But my pitch was always that it didn't matter that you needed uh, an inflation hedge. And this was a great inflation hedge, it was tailorable, lots of things you could do with it. And so, you know, I had to be an evangelist. And so I was a very good, good pick for this, this position. And we started quoting inflation swaps. And I got the Chicago Mercantile Exchange to list the CPI futures contract, and I was the sole market maker for it. And, um, and so I really was there at the birth of that market. Um, I have a I have a little uh, badge from the Merck that says father of uh, CPI futures that I'm very proud of. Um, but the problem with Wall Street, so that, that's all good. We, we sort of started the market and, and now nowadays it's a, it's a much larger market um, and everybody trades it. But the problem is that Wall Street likes to trade great big amounts of vanilla product when they can. Um, the vanilla product actually is not as important. In fact, the more opaque, the better. But it needs to be a big market. Um, Wall Street doesn't really like small basis risks. Um, if it's a market that's developed, that's okay. If they get paid a lot to take the, that risk, they can. But in a startup market, you're taking risk, but the reward comes years later. And so trying to do things like... Uh, medical care inflation or education inflation, all the interesting things in inflation were very risky things. And, and Wall Street, not just Barclays, but other shops as well, didn't really want to do that. And so I eventually left Wall Street to form my own investment management company and consulting firm called Enduring Investments that focuses specifically on doing these these uh, weird things in inflation and, and helping people hedge things they can't hedge with plain vanilla, uh, you know, plain vanilla products. You're putting different products together. And this has been a long story. You know, this is, I've spent many, many years in this arena and that's why I'm the inflation guy. Um, I've spent my 10,000 hours, a lot of it very lonely when inflation wasn't doing anything. And, uh, and, and, and developed a lot of insights, uh, a lot of knowledge about a market that, and about a topic that for the last 25 years no one's cared about. So this seems like a good place to tell you what it is that I do believe, because the point of this podcast is, is to sort of, you know, as I said up top, to talk about how you measure inflation and, 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 but also how you protect yourself against inflation, how you forecast inflation and things like that. And I have lots of experience doing those things. But I should tell you what it is that I believe because I have some views that are distinctly non-mainstream. So I believe that inflation is a monetary phenomenon. <clears throat> and I'll... I'll expand on that a little bit in episode two. Well, not a little bit, a lot in episode two. But by saying that I'm a monetarist, that puts me distinctly out of the mainstream. And frankly, it puts me with a lot of wackos who don't really understand monetarism. But uh, whereas monetarism used to be extremely popular and, and, and you know has a hundred years of great forecasts behind it, um, 
it has gradually fallen out of favor in policymaker circles. And I believe that the reason, one of the reasons that that's the case is that policymakers are generally people who have gone, at least at central banks, who have gone and gotten their PhDs at fancy schools. And in doing that, um, thanks to Paul Samuelson, there's a lot of mathematics involved. Um, whatever you learned in college in, in economics, when you go to graduate school, it's a whole different world, lots and lots of math. And, and so imagine that you've done that and you, you've come out and you, you, you have your freshly minted PhD and you join the Fed and they say, hey, can you come up with a monetarist model? And after about 15 minutes, you've done it and you're kind of bored. And then, and so you, what you really want to work on is a really complex macroeconomic model of, you know, a general equilibrium of the economy that, that makes predictions and, uh, and does all sorts of really fancy stuff and, and most importantly involves a lot of math. And so you get, you get things like the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment which is a neat theoretical construct that absolutely does not work in practice. And you get things like the expectations augmented Phillips curve, which starts from an assumption that, the, that, that Phillips, when he described his curve, didn't mean what he said he meant. And so we have to do something and we have to augment something that he didn't mean to get to something which also doesn't work. But there's lots and lots of math behind there, and I think that's why we have many more Keynesians than we do monetarists. Uh, maybe that's a simple explanation, but a lot of times the simple explanation is correct, which is why the older I get, the more I get to be like a monetarist. Uh, in episode three, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about uh, the consumer price index. And, and I, I do have to confess that I believe that the Consumer Price Index, which is produced by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, is not a perfect price indicator, but it's, it's not bad. And it's, if, it's, if, if it doesn't work perfectly, it, it's at least honestly that way. I believe the professionals of the BLS, um, whatever the professionals in other statistical agencies in the United States government and other governments you know, do, I believe that the, the, the folks in the price division, the CPI division of the BLS, are, are honest academics who have worked very hard to have an accurate representation of the average price experience of, of an American consumer. The fact that it isn't perfect is not an indictment. It's just a reality. But I think that, um, I think that the real problem that people have with it is not that they've really examined all the assumptions and decided it's wanting. It's that it doesn't feel right. It feels too low. And, uh, and to some people, it feels very high. But, but in general, people tend to think that it feels too low, which is why you have wackos saying that it's really eight, you know, 6% higher than the BLS says. In episode three, we'll talk about the CPI, how it's constructed, and, and I'll I'll explain to you why there are reasons, and they're perfectly valid and, and, and okay reasons, that you, and they're understandable, that you think that you feel like inflation is really higher than it is. And they're kind of, it's kind of interesting why that's the case. And I think I can convince you that, that the, uh, the CPI is not a bad indicator. Um, now, 
I believe that the secular downtrend in inflation is over. As I mentioned when I first got into the inflation markets, I didn't necessarily think the secular downtrend was over. I didn't think we were going to see much higher inflation. But I saw a reason for a market anyway in inflation, even if uh, you didn't think that. But I, I now believe, and in fact, before COVID, I already believed that we had completed the secular downtrend and we were in a secular uptrend. And by secular, I mean something which lasts a very long time. Not in a straight line, but where higher highs and higher lows. So you ebb and flow, ebb and flow, but instead of the last 40 years where every high was lower than the last one and every low was lower than the last one, from here on out, every high is going to be higher and every low is going to be lower. And that's what I mean by, by changing to a secular uptrend. Um, I believe that velocity is not fixed, and and Friedman didn't say it was. Um, this is one of those red flag issues. If you if you catch someone talking about monetarism and telling you why monetarism is so stupid and how it can't be right, because the monetarists think that velocity is stable, um, then you know they don't know what they're talking about because that's that's not something that Friedman ever said, and it's it's. And it's not important to what a monetarist believes. What's important as a modeler, as a forecaster, is that you can say what causes velocity to vary. And, and we can. And it turns out that it's not what you think it is. Um, but, uh, you know, it isn't what a lot of people says, uh, say it is. But we have some decent idea of, of why velocity varies. And roughly episode four, we'll see what else you know, falls in here. But roughly episode four, I'm going to talk about modeling velocity and why it is that that monetary velocity is something which we can get our arms around uh, and make some sense of. And that's pretty important to a monetarist that you, you have some idea of that. Um, I should reiterate that I, I do believe that the government is more than capable of screwing everything up. I don't want anyone to think that I'm an apologist just because I think the BLS is, you know, it's full of honest people. They may be alone because there's a lot of non-honest people in government and, uh, and a lot of honest, peop honest people in government who are just incompetent, but at least honestly incompetent. And there are people who are malevolent. I, I fully believe that as bad as the policy response has been to COVID and to the global financial crisis, it can be much worse. <laughs> and, I, and I am not at all confident. You know, one of the things that that you hear occasionally from the Fed is we have the tools to prevent inflation. And uh, and what I always like to say is, well, do they have the tools? The answer is yes. Do they understand how to use the tools? And the answer is not really, because they're Keynesians and the tools don't do what they think it, they do. Um, and most importantly, do they have the will to use the tools? And the answer to that is clearly no. Um, we don't have, you know, the, the policymakers have clearly abandoned the idea that inflation needs to be low and stable first and, and that that will lead to maximizing growth in the long run. I believe that, that we're, you know, we, we've been very we've been very lucky that we haven't been more unlucky so far with respect to policy outcomes. But uh, I don't have a lot of confidence um, 
you know, if, if the squirrel finds a nut by luck, it doesn't necessarily mean a lot of, a lot of talent. Um, I believe that people tend to do inflation wrong because we live in a nominal world. By that I mean you're, you're accustomed to thinking of things in, in quantities that are already adjusted for inflation. You look at the 10-year interest rate or you think about a return and you think, oh, I made a 4% return without asking what was inflation, what was my real return. And you shouldn't be thinking about the nominal return at all. It's completely irrelevant to you. You care about the real return, and that's just not the way we're wired because we're born in a world that is a nominal world. And so, having said that, when, when you see people do something like take the 10-year interest rate and subtract last year's inflation to say that real, real yields are minus 4%, um, that's either dumb or it's, it's driven by some sort of uh, policy statement that they want to make or some sort of investment statement that they want to make. And, and they know it's wrong. But you don't have to be an inflation guy. You just have to know something about, about interest rates and bonds to know that that's just the wrong way you do it. If you, if you are going to invest money at a fixed rate for 10 years, you want to know two things. You want to know what's the real cost of your money, how much more stuff do you need to have at the end than at the beginning. Okay, that's the real interest rate. And you need to know what you know, how much the, the value of that unit will change. That, that's expected inflation over that 10 years. None of that has anything to do with last year. But before we had tips, it turns out that the way economists modeled expectations was to, was to assume that they followed prior year inflation, which is not a horrible assumption if you don't have a market to actually trade real interest rates. But now we do, and there's no reason to make that mistake. Again, that's something that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about how to, uh, how to understand the real world and how to understand a portfolio through a real lens and be you know, an inflation-aware uh, investor. I should take a little pause here and say that um, we recently launched an app called the Inflation Guy app. It's free. It's in your app store. And, and and we just rolled it out recently. But but in that app, we're going to, among other things, have some tools and some uh, how tos explaining various things and things that I'll explain on the podcast. But but also uh, will be in written form there, uh, probably as well. Um, look, the reason that we're doing this podcast, the reason I'm doing this podcast, is that inflation is not just the investing problem of our time; it's the investing problem of all time. And, and it's one that we've neglected for the last quarter century and more because inflation hasn't done anything. If you're under 40, you don't remember inflation. You don't remember inflation being up over you know, 5%. We haven't seen core inflation over 3% in 25 years until this last couple of months. And, and yet we're born with it. You're not born with equity risk. You're not born with credit risk. You are born with inflation risk. And if you do nothing to address that inflation risk, you have it until the day you die. And so if you're investing 
if you're 20 years old right now and you're investing for the next 60 years, the biggest, the single biggest risk you have is the risk that the price level is going to be appreciably different in 60 years. And yet, that's not, that doesn't enter into most investors' calculations these days because we haven't had to worry about it for a while. When that changes, it has lots of really interesting effects on in investment markets, on the correlation between stocks and bonds, on the expected return, the expected real returns of these asset classes, and not necessarily the ones you've been told. So we will talk about that. Um, I do believe that the financial ecosystem is designed to, to perpetuate the dominance of large firms. Uh, surprise! Uh, big firms defend their their turf, and and uh, but little firms are where all of the innovation is, and that's why I went and started a little firm. Little firms take risk to try new things because that's the only way they can make a reward. Big firms don't like that risk. They're they're making reward because they're big. And so if you want to find interesting things, if you want to find the smart people, if you want to find the risk takers who are trying new things, you don't go to the big firms. They're running from the big firms. You go to the small firms. Well, anyway, I think we're going to have plenty to talk about. Um, and, and I have a long list of topics to talk about. But I want to know what you think the Inflation Guy ought to be talking about. So if you get the Inflation Guy app, you can send me an email from within the app. You can go to the EnduringInvestments.com website and fill out the form and send me a note. Tell me what you think I should be talking about. And uh, I can't guarantee I'll talk about everything. And certainly not right away. I'm not going to be doing these daily. But tell me what you want me to talk about, and I will try to get around to it. At the very least, I'll respond to you and, um, and get to know you. You know, I'm sitting in a room by myself. And uh, this is, you know, I've never done a podcast. And it's a very weird thing. And it's only doable because I know there are people out there. I know you're out there listening. And, and, and hopefully, you're getting something out of this. Maybe not so much today. You now know who I am a little bit. You hopefully think I'm not a wacko. But I know you're going to get something out of it. And so I'm really glad you're out there. And so let me know that you're out there. Uh, Subscribe to the podcast. Uh, sub go go download the Inflation Guy app, and uh, let's get to know each other. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, again, the podcast name is Sense and Sensibility, and uh, and I'm I am Michael Ashton, and I am the Inflation Guy. Evidently, defend your money, and and remember, if inflation is coming for you. Remember that you know a guy.